Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to the Vineyard. It's so good to be with you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And my name is Christian Roots. I'm the associate pastor here and really thankful that I have an opportunity to share this morning. And today we're going to be concluding this year's Advent series that we've called A Weary World Rejoices. The season of Advent reminds us that of all people, followers of Jesus have the most cause to be joyful. For followers of Jesus believe that our our God took on flesh in the person of Jesus and came into this world to save us. And, And not only did he visit us once, but he has promised, of course, to return again. The word Advent, as some of you know, means arrival or coming. And so during the season of Advent, we look not only back to Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem, but we also look ahead to his second coming. And how appropriate that at the darkest time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, tomorrow's our our shortest day of the calendar year, at the time of of the year when we experience the least amount of sunlight, the least amount of warmth, that that we should turn our thoughts to the second coming of Christ, the one who will come and pierce the darkness of this world with his great and magnificent light. And so today I want to spend some time talking briefly about the return of Christ and why this return of Jesus should bring us much joy. But, you know, before we we jump into the main points of today's message, I I do want to speak parenthetically for a moment. You know, know, listen, there is a temptation for some of us who are followers of Jesus, not all of us, but, but some of us, to ignore the second coming of Christ, to avoid it. Because quite frankly, there have been so many embarrassingly bad predictions related to the return of Christ over the centuries. And so, for example, let's just hone in on the past 30 years or so, shall we? We we don't have to go back that far. Let's just look at the past 30 years. You you might remember in in 1988, for example, Edgar Wisenant wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Don't know if you remember this one. Copies of this book, they were sent to nearly every pastor in America, and the book went on to sell over four and a half million copies. It's million with an M. Now, let me give you just one example from Edgar's book. I can't help myself. One, one of the 88 reasons why Edgar believed that Christ was going to return in 1988. Here's just one reason. America was founded in 1776. Okay, that checks out. Water boils at 212 degrees. 1776 plus 212 equals, what, 1988. I mean, it's science. I, I, don't, I don't know how you get around that kind of airtight logic. When Jesus did not return in 1988, Edgar went on to write a second book entitled 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1989. Surprisingly, this book did not sell nearly as well. But you know, we don't have to go back to the 80s. Many of you might remember, as I do, that in 2011, Harold Camping, a a Christian radio broadcaster and president of Family Radio out in California, predicted that the world would come to an end on October 21st of that year. Camping and his followers put up massive billboards all over America announcing the end of the world in 2011. 
I remember talking to a close family member who called me up, who, who is not a believer, but was genuinely concerned and asked me, do, do most Christians, do, do you actually believe that the world is about to end? To which I replied, absolutely not. Because the only bit of information regarding the date of Jesus' return that we're given in the Bible is that no one will know when it's about to happen. This is what we read, for, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, But about that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Friends, every single prediction that has ever been uttered regarding the second, or regarding, yes, the second coming of Christ, it's been wrong. It's been wrong. We do not know the day, the hour that he is coming. And so, as I said, there is a temptation for followers of Jesus to ignore the return of Christ, perhaps because of, of embarrassingly bad predictions in the past, or, or perhaps because you were a part of a, a church in, in the past that invested so much of their focus and their time on the study of the end times, on a, a study of Christ's return, that there just wasn't appropriate attention given to other themes and teachings found in the Bible. Friend, whatever the case may be, there is a temptation to, to push the, the return of Christ to the periphery of our life, of our faith, never discussing it or acknowledging it or, or even praying for it for fear of being labeled a crackpot, for fear that we'll be linked with the likes of those who were putting up billboards in 2011 announcing Jesus' imminent return. But friends, the, the New Testament simply does not allow us to disregard the return of Christ. Listen to this. So of the 27 New Testament books, only two tiny books, Philemon and 3 John, do not reference Jesus' second coming. 25 of the 27 books reference his return. There are over 300 references to the return of Christ in the New Testament. That's one out of every 30 verses is a reference to his second coming. For every prophecy that exists in the Bible regarding the first coming of Christ, and there, there are many, many beautiful prophecies regarding his first coming. For every one prophecy of his first coming, there are eight prophecies regarding his second coming. And so we dare not place the return of Christ on the periphery of our Christian faith. We dare not ignore such a central theme in the New Testament. And we dare not ignore the return of Christ, for we're called to be people who eagerly await Christ's return. It's what, what part of the season of Advent is all about, this arrival, this coming. We eagerly await his, his return. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says this. I love this verse. Since Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to who? Who's he bringing salvation to? To those who are waiting for him. The great reformer Martin Luther said this. He said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. In other words, Luther was saying there are only two days which should truly matter in the life of a Christian. T today matters because this is the only day in which we can serve the Lord. This is the only day in which we have agency to act. And the only other day that matters, of course, is the day of his return. For we're called to live every day of our lives in light of, in anticipation of, this great and marvelous day. 
Friend, are, are you eagerly anticipating the return of Christ? As you walk through the frustrations that inevitably accompany your days, are you routinely comforted by the fact that Jesus has promised to return? That the creator of this earth will dwell with us in bodily form once again in a new heavens and a new earth that he has established. I want to offer now three reasons why Jesus' return should be the source of much rejoicing for believers. Three quick reasons. And here's here's reason number one. Number one, why should thoughts of Jesus' return bring us joy? Because upon his return, Jesus will be fully revealed. That's my first point. Jesus is going to be fully revealed. This is what we read in Matthew 24, verses 27 and 30. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then will appear the sign of the the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. They will mourn. That is, followers of Jesus will fall down in absolute repentance, just in awe, in wonder of the glory and the power of Jesus. While those who have rejected him in this life will fall down in utter dejection. That's what the word mourn there means. And and why will we all fall face down, either in dejection or or in repentance and awe and wonder? Because it says that he's coming with power and great glory. The Jesus who was revealed to Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration, when his face shined like the sun and his clothes became white as light, this is the Jesus that we will see upon his return. The Jesus that revealed himself to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos will be revealed to us. This is how John described that encounter with Jesus on Patmos in Revelation 1. This is what he says. He says, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Friends, when Jesus returns, the curtain will be pulled back and we will see Jesus as he truly is. His infinite beauty and power and glory will be on display. Don't you just long to see Jesus as he truly is? Don't you just long to see his face so that you're, you're just brought, brought to your knees, brought on your face? Second Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus' followers will marvel at him upon his return. Aren't you ready? Don't you long to marvel as you gaze upon Christ? To just be in awe of who he is, of how beautiful he is, how powerful he is, how glorious he is. You know, if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship before, when you were away at college or when a spouse was in the military, perhaps, you know the longing of desperately wanting to see another face-to-face. 
You know that letters do not suffice, that phone calls are, are just not sufficient. No, what you long for when you're in a long-distance relationship is to see the object of your affection face-to-face, don't you? To see them as they truly are. And as followers of Jesus, we long to see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his power and majesty and honor. We've seen these little glimpses of him. We've been given these little tastes of him, these little snippets, little snippets, these brief momentary glances at his character, at his beauty, at his goodness. Oh, but we long to see all of it. We, we long to be in awe. We long, again, as 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, we long to marvel at who he is. Joseph Stoll was the former president of, of Moody Bible Institute. And one day he was visiting a, a home for mentally handicapped children. And he noticed tiny handprints of, of all the children covering the windows. And so Stoll remarked about these tiny handprints that were on all the windows to, to his friend who was running this home for handicapped children. And his friend replied, I, I love this, he said, the children here love Jesus, and they are so eager for him to return that they lean against the windows as they look up to the sky. Isn't that a beautiful picture? These mentally handicapped children who are so in love with Jesus, who feel so validated by him, so accepted by him, that they place their tiny hands on the window as they look up to the sky anticipating his arrival. Friends, this is the posture of a Christian. We place our hands on the window, as it were, because we long to see the beauty of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the glory of the one who has saved us. Secondly, why does the thought of Jesus' return bring joy to Christians? It's because upon his return, Jesus is going to put an end to all injustice. All injustice. That's why we have hope. That's why we look with joy to his second coming. In Isaiah chapter 42, excuse me, Isaiah prophesies that a Messiah is coming. And here's what the Lord says about the coming Messiah through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Now that word that we translate as justice here in Isaiah 42, verse 2 and 3 and 4, it's the word mishpat, mishpat. And the word mishpat, which Again, we translate into justice in the English. It's a word that means more than simply restoring human rights or or punishing wrongdoers, although it it does include those things. When when Isaiah 42 speaks of God's justice, his mishpat being established, he's referring to a world in which God's shalom that is his peace and harmony and wholeness and total well-being are established. A world in which the effects of sin, 
that were introduced into the world in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve bit of the forbidden fruit. It's a world in which the effects of sin are done away with forever. Friends, because we live in a broken and a sinful world, we, we experience all kinds of brokenness. All kinds. We, we experience spiritual brokenness to begin. That is, we experience a lost relationship with God. We experience relational brokenness. That is, a lost relationship with each other. All of us know this is true. We experience social brokenness. That is, conflict between genders and races and classes. We experience physical brokenness. That is, we are subject, of course, to sickness and in death. And then lastly, we, we experience systemic brokenness. All governmental systems have some dysfunction because of sin. Oh, but friends, when Jesus returns, Isaiah tells us sin and all of its effects, all of its ramifications will be done away with. All that is wrong will be made right. All that is broken will be fixed. All that is evil and sinful will be done away with forever. In the wonderful book by, by C.S. Lewis, that I know some of you are familiar with, probably many of you, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, <clears throat> it's a book about a group of siblings who enter a magical world called Narnia via a wardrobe. And I'm just going to grab... A quick drink. You'd think I would remember by now to bring this over, but bear with me here. Thank you. All right, so there's this wonderful book. Many of you have read it, I'm sure. Read it to your kids. Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe. And these children, they, they soon learn that this magical, wonderful place called Narnia is permanently kept in a state of winter by an evil white witch. But they're also told, and I love this metaphor, that a king has promised to return. A lion named Aslan who will break the, the spell of winter in their land. It's perpetually, permanently winter in this land. But, but there's this, this belief by the creatures that live there that one is coming, this lion named Aslan who will restore spring. And Mr. Beaver shares with the children the popular rhyme of their land that goes like this. This will probably be the only time I, I quote someone named Mr. Beaver in a sermon, so here we go. I love this. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Friends, this is the hope of the Christian when the real Aslan, Jesus Christ, returns, wrongs are going to be made right, as the poem shares. Sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, the brokenness of the world will meet its death, and spring will be here again. This is our hope as we watch the news. And we just think, what is going on in this country? What is going on in this world? This is our hope as our bodies begin to betray us as we age. This is our hope as we examine the economic disparity in this world and the racial injustice and the abuse of the innocent. This is our hope, friends, as we struggle with our own sin. Got to be careful here. This isn't in the notes, but I, I just, I've had one of those weeks. I don't know if you ever have one of those weeks where, where you're just, 
just overwhelmed by your own sinfulness, just overwhelmed by your own inability to fix yourself. You ever have one of those kind of weeks where, where, where you're just discouraged by the fact that, wait, wait, Jesus, I've been doing this now in my case, you know, for 14 years. Like, like you think I would be farther along. And friend, when we examine our own sin, when we examine the, the racial injustice of the world, the, the fact that there is so much rampant abuse of innocent people in this world, we have to turn. We have to turn as followers of Jesus to this truth that spring is coming, that Jesus is coming, that all will be well once again. Hallelujah. You know, every, every year my, my wife creates a countdown to spring in our house. Not a big fan of winter, my wife. And uh, last year, I remember she put this big calendar in our kitchen, right on the door that leads to the garage. And she put up a huge circle around the first day of spring. And every day, I would see her mark this giant X on that particular day, just counting down, counting down, almost spring, almost spring, almost spring. Friends, again, that's the posture of a Christian. So we look around at the world. We say, oh, Father, would you bring spring not that we sit around in passivity, just waiting for Jesus to come. No, no, we, we run after the calling that he has on our life because we know that our work isn't in vain, because we know it's not all for naught, that, that Jesus is going to return and that spring is coming. Now, I, I said that God's justice, it involves more than simply punishment for wrongdoing, but his, his justice does not exclude his punishment of evil. For if the Lord simply ignored the sin and the injustice of this world, he could not be just. And Scripture is quite clear that Jesus will return to bring judgments. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, for example. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time each will receive their praise from God. And again in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul tells us that upon Jesus' return, all that is hidden will be revealed. All that is concealed will be brought under the bright lights of Jesus' gaze, and that we will be judged for what we have done. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that while all of us must come before the judgment of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that those who have tried to live a moral life, those who have left their name and number when they dinged a car next to them in the Kroger parking lot, and those who contributed to United Way, and those who attended all of their children's soccer games, those, in other words, who, who are kind and decent people, that they're going to be welcomed and accepted by Jesus. While, while those who engaged in rampant infidelity or were abusive to their children or physically violent towards others will be condemned to hell. That's not what Paul is saying. No, instead, uh, upon Jesus' return, there will only be one distinction that matters. Listen to me on this. Uh, on the day of judgment, the only thing that will matter will be whether or not a person comes to the place of judgment alone or whether they come to the place of judgment with Christ at their side. 
Whether or not a person is left to defend their own actions before a God who sees all of our hearts, who sees everything that we've ever done, or whether a person witnesses Jesus leaving his seat of judgment to stand next to them on their behalf saying, this one is mine. And so, friend, if if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I recognize in a room with this many people that some of us here are not followers of Jesus, may I plead with you not to wait another day before accepting Jesus as your Savior. May I encourage you right now, even where you are in your seat, you can receive Jesus as your Savior. You can come before him and you can say right now, just in your own heart as you sit there, as you listen to me, Jesus, I I want to repent of my sins. That is, I, I want to turn around. I don't want to live like I've been living. And Jesus, I I believe by faith that you came and you died for me, that you willingly received the punishment that I deserve, that I rightfully deserve when you went to the cross and died for my sins. And I believe that because you died in my place, because you substituted yourself for me, that my sins have been forgiven, that I've been washed clean, white as snow, You can say that right now as you listen to me. You can pray something similar in your own heart. You you can say, Jesus, I, I believe that you are the Savior of this world. And I want to live the rest of my life for you. I want to live in obedience to you. I want to obey you as you help me through the Holy Spirit. And I believe, Jesus, by faith, that because of your sacrifice on my behalf, and not because of anything that I have done, not because of anything that I've brought to the table, I believe that one day I will stand before you in judgment, and yet you will come and remove yourself from the judgment seat and stand beside me as my advocate. I believe that I will not come to the place of judgment on my own. You can pray that right now, and friend, you can leave this service with the assurance that you're a follower of Jesus, that you have been saved, and that you will be with Jesus for all eternity. Friends, finally, let me me close here. Why does Jesus' return give joy to Christians this Christmas? It's because upon his return, Jesus' followers will be rewarded be rewarded. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says this. He says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The return of Jesus will bring rewards for his followers, while his return will bring punishments to those who have rejected him. And you know, I find this truth that Jesus will bring reward for his followers, will actually give his followers gifts, such an encouraging, such a wonderful thought, because we we know that Jesus is just incredibly generous, don't we? Many of us have a family member who is just incredibly generous at at Christmas time. I I have a sister-in-law, in fact, who is extremely generous generous. She just can't help herself. Every year among our family, among my wife's side of the family, we say, okay, listen, we're just going to give one gift to the person whose name we draw in the secret Santa hat. That's it, okay? And we're going to give one gift each to to each of the kiddos. 
to the grandkids that, that are still little. That's all we're doing. We're going to give one gift. And every year, God bless her, she just gives gifts to everyone, just making everyone else feel bad and look bad. It's like, you get a gift, you get a gift. The kids are getting three, four, five gifts each. She just can't help it herself. It's not because she's, you know, absolutely wealthy. She's just a giver. She's just generous. That's who she is. And like my sister-in-law, Jesus is incredibly generous. He loves to give gifts. Throughout the New Testament, we often see Jesus harassed by crowds, often on little sleep. And he just can't help but be generous anyway. He gives the gift of sight, and he gives the gift of health, and even gives the gift of life to a few who had passed away. Of course, most importantly, he gives the gift of eternal life to many. And think about how generous Jesus is when we ask him for help right now. When we ask for his peace. When we ask for his wisdom. When we ask for his favor. When we ask for his discernment, his joy. He gives us these gifts now through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a gift-giving Savior. That's who he is. Just can't help himself but be generous. Friend, you you might have lived a rather complicated, messy life up until this point, even if you're a follower of Jesus. So you might be tempted to believe that while your salvation is secure, surely the reward that you're going to receive, the gift that that Jesus has for you, you might tend to think is going to be rather insignificant, at least compared to others, you know, the, the super saints of the church. But I want to encourage you this morning as we gear up for Christmas, do not underestimate the kindness and the generosity of your Savior. If you are a legitimate follower of Jesus, then upon his return, he has promised to reward you for your life. That's what you have coming for you. But not only is Jesus generous, he also knows us perfectly. He knows us perfectly. Let me close with this last thought. You know, have you ever known a really good gift giver? Just someone who has a knack for giving the perfect gift? My, my, my wife is like that. She's just so good at giving gifts. And so every, every Christmas, every time of, of year when it's her birthday, I, I just hate, honestly, I just hate giving her gifts because it always, you know, f- feels so lame in comparison. It's like, here's your gift card, sweetheart. You know, I'm just terrible at giving gifts. And and she is just amazing at it. I I remember one of our first Easter's together as a married couple. She hid an Easter basket for me. And inside the Easter basket, wrapped up in, in paper, was a beautiful, beautiful raw steak. And I, I just thought, she knows me. She... She gets me. I feel so known in this moment. She knows I don't want a chocolate bunny. Give me steak. Give me that raw steak I can cook up on the grill, all right? (laughs) Friends, Jesus, he knows you. He knows you. In John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so when it comes to reward you upon his return, he will know exactly what to give you. His reward for you is going to be perfect. 
It's going to be better than you can imagine. And friend, far better than any physical reward that Jesus could give us. We know that Jesus is going to reward us with his very presence. We know that we're going to get, again, to see him face to face. We will dwell with Jesus and our Father for all eternity. What can be more exciting? What could give more hope to a follower of Jesus to know that he is going to reward us with his very presence? Oh, church, how can we not anticipate the return of Christ this Christmas season with great, with great joy? How can we not sing along with the old hymn that says, Rejoice, rejoice, our King is coming, and the time will not be long until we hail the radiant dawning and lift up the glad new song. Oh, may we never weary watching, never lay our armor down until He comes and with rejoicing gives to each the promised crown. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand, church, and let's worship our King who is coming to us.